Hello everyone. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode number 10, the big 1-0. Oh my god. We can't actually believe that this is our 10th episode. It's crazy. Yeah, it feels it definitely feels like a lot longer, but um we are so excited for what is coming next for the podcast. And so excited that you guys are coming in a in a journey with us. And yeah, first of all, we just wanted to say thanks to our sponsors, Design and Build, that believe in our ideas and want to create change in these industries. So thank you so much, Design Build. Um, to celebrate our tenth episode, we we actually have a really special guest. Um, his name is Wolfgang. And he has a really interesting background uh, just because he started in a different industry that we don't really know much about. And we are excited to share his journey as a male in the engineering industry. So without further ado, we're going to just introduce him. Um, so yes, Wolfie is a senior mechanical engineer specializing in rotating equipment, reliability and static equipment. He entered the British Navy as an artificer apprentice, sorry, I might have butchered that, uh, and completed his apprenticeship in Scotland before he joined the HM submarines. He served 24 years in the Royal Navy, with 20 years in nuclear submarines, moving into a role as a senior and CEO of CAT as a watchkeeper of the various nuclear plants of the submarines he served on. That is absolutely incredible like i we haven't t- spoken to anyone you know from the from the the, the navy <laughs> after leaving the royal navy he emigrated to new zealand to work in their only oil refinery nzrc now called refining nz uh, looking after the rotating equipment and becoming the senior reliability engineer for the refinery before moving to australia in Australia, he worked for lighting refinery for a period of time, and then he moved into a different role in natural gas. He's now part of ConocoPhillips, and he has been in that company for about eight years. His role there is to manage asset integrity and static equipment for the Curtis Island LNG facility. He received a technical diploma in marine engineering with a Bachelor of Engineering Honours in Mechanical Engineering with Electronic Systems, a Master's in Maintenance and Reliability, a Postgraduate Diploma in Industrial and Organisational Psychology, and a Master's in Business Psychology. He's also volunteered for Engineers Australia, becoming Chair of College of Leadership and Management Queensland, and he's the Co-Chair of the Women in Engineering Committee here in Queensland which is amazing, and that's actually how I met him. That, that is how we heard, uh, you know, of Wolfgang and um, his thoughts and his his view on, you know, inclus- inclusion of women in this industry is what really stuck out to us. And his insights are phenomenal. So we hope that uh, you will have as much fun uh, and get as much insight as we did get speaking in speaking to him. And we first want to thank him because this is, pretty much the first interview that he does um that is like in a podcast or that is actually going to be available anyway really so thank you so much for for that privilege no it sounds cheesy but no it's a pleasure quite excited nervous but yeah <laughs> so i guess a bit to start off with 
um, is something that we'd like to like, you know, have the listeners know a little bit about your background. Um, yeah, I guess we'll start with that. Uh, I am a mechanical engineer and I work for an oil and gas company. So that's kind of like one of the dreaded things at the moment <laughs> in natural gas. But I started as an, uh, my apprenticeship in the UK in the British Navy. I joined the Royal Navy, went down to Plymouth and did my apprenticeship uh, three years in Scotland as mechanical. Uh, marine engineer and artificer we called it and um, the only way to stay up near Newcastle where I came from was to go further north to Scotland to sort of just outside Glasgow and I did 21 years in nuclear submarines which is pretty cool and kind of yeah so uh, that was pretty good that was kind of like a baptism of fire when you hit the ground running on your first submarine and you're kind of in the thick of it and everything else but spend a bit of time away and then you've got to make the transition at the end of that kind of career after, after 22 years, we called it, because we've got to do two years boys' time, we called it. Uh, I went and got a degree, studied part-time. So I graduated in 2000. So I'm a fairly new engineer on 22 years. And, uh, yeah, I emigrated when I left the Navy, joined New Zealand, worked in a refinery there. Uh, that was that was pretty cool. I actually had an office with windows that you could see out of and all that. It was kind of... That's pretty neat, not having to go away. And I think about 11 years ago, I moved to Australia, uh, a little bit in Moranbar, and then I came down to work at the refinery in Lytton in Brisbane. And I got a job where I am now with uh, Conoco, so working in the oil and gas and support the plant on Curtis Island. Mechanical engineer, acid integrity, mechanical, structural, uh, a lot of experience with taking equipment, pumps, compressors. All that kind of fun stuff, valves and things like that. So yeah, mm, it's so different. And yeah. what what brought you to the engineering industry? <laughs> I think when you're young, where I was growing up in Newcastle, we're fair, we, we were kind of like impoverished, but we definitely where I lived was a poor part of the country. And kind of when you look for a way out, with at school, our careers officer, we were going into the the shipyards. You're going into get an apprenticeship near the shipyards. Or you'll go into the forces, which could either be Army, Navy, Air Force, or the police, that kind of thing. You're too young to go into the fire service when you leave school at 16. And many of us didn't really get the option to stay on and go to uni. I remember my friend actually went to the careers office at the time, wanted to be a solicitor. He's like, why? You come from Wall's End. Why Why would you want to do that when you've got the shipyards down the road and you've got Parsons engineering up the road? And so they looked at it, a bit of shock and horror if you wanted to be different. So a way out for me was just to join the Navy. And I, I signed up to be an artificer apprentice. And I had no idea what an artificer was. But I knew what an yeah, apprenticeship what is that? was. <laughs> it's just an old-fashioned word, if you like, for technician. Ah. So we did a four-year apprenticeship. We did a lot of classroom work as well. So it wasn't your average kind of thing. We did a lot of hands-on stuff in the workshops as well, fitting and turning and the the coppersmith and welding all that kind of stuff so it's very it's half and half practical and theory to then let us loose on nuclear submarines or ships at the end of it so it's pretty cool but i fell into engineering i didn't have a had a knack for things when i was young pulling apart toys and stuff like that but no i just used it as a way out of where i was in the northeast mm. yeah mm. And it's definitely completely different from what it is now, I'm guessing, back on the day. Yeah, I kind of 
fulfilled all the stereotypes for joining, particularly the Navy broken home, kind of young male, kind of like disinterested in many things, looking for, uh, I think the military give you kind of some structure at the time. And certainly going into some of the apprenticeships, I had friends that stayed at home and went into their apprenticeship. Although they weren't in the military, I think the old-fashioned way of doing an apprenticeship is fairly well structured. As was even going to university, going to some of the old school things there. Did you ever have to serve as a part of that apprenticeship? Or like, was it mostly just the technician side of things? uh, Well, I was in the Navy, so we could be called on, but generally... uh, just before the end of our apprenticeship, the Falklands sort of started. And there was talk about moving us out or shipping us out early, but no, we said, no, the important thing is to finish your apprenticeship and then join the fleet properly. But yeah, luckily, while we were in the training, we weren't put anywhere near a front line or anything like that. Used to, which is kind of, you're full of gung ho at the time when you're young, it's kind of like you want to get involved because you're, yeah. you're essentially a stupid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't you don't understand what you're letting yourself in for in some respects when you go for that and, when, and then when you do see some of the horror of it and you realize your friends are coming up from the lists and the newspapers it's kind of like that's fair and did you have that experience like did you see people you knew yeah we did uh people that were training us you know so we had some senior guys that were in our apprenticeship trainers i had a few mm-hmm. few friends that sort of dropped out their apprenticeship and joined that side of the fleet we, we categorized we call it Okay. So there's people we knew coming up on the kind of casualty list. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that would definitely be a easy enough to make you serious pretty quickly. Yeah, it brings you down to earth quite a bit. We were in the we were in the Collinwood nightclub, HMS Collinwood. We call our training establishments HMS as well. It's an old naval thing. But we were there training, doing some electrical cross training or cross threading we called it. And we're actually all we're all in the dance floor, all having a good time in this nightclub there and everything. It was all kind of nice. And then we got the announcement that I think it was Coventry. HMS Coventry had been sunk. There was a number of deaths and I just kind of like stopped it and we're all kind of like, yeah, wow. And you could hear a pin drop for, for a couple of minutes in that room. What year was that? That would be 81, 82, I think. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The memory's okay. a bit funny now. So you did the apprenticeship for how long was that? Uh, four years. Four years? Yeah. And, and then after that, where did that take you? I uh, joined the HMS Renown, my first submarine. It's kind of like Antique Feme Custos was a motto, Guardians of an Ancient Renown. A kind of like very Game of Thrones language, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> but it's the stuff that you remember because... When you join submarines, you have to do what we call part three training. So you do your part one and part two training, which part one is the tank. There's a 100, 100 foot tank. You practice escaping from that. It's nice. It's warm. It's like being in the bath. It's lovely. It's <laughs> and then part two is learning about the submarine, the systems. And then part three is doing your job on board and actually finishing off the whole of the submarine kind of walk through the training. And that was really, really good. That takes about an average of a patrol, which for us was about eight weeks, plus you do about three three to four weeks, what we call sort of workup or index prior to going on patrol. You pretend to be on fire at war, then on fire at war. Hmm. 
What are your favorite moments or like any stories that you have to share whilst you were finishing that apprenticeship? Yeah, I've got loads of stories I can't share, I suppose, but <laughs> I think, I mean, it's, it's odd. Actually, I'm catching up with a colleague on a Saturday morning, uh, Rich, and I haven't seen him since 1979. He went to electrical, I went mechanical, so we went to different establishments. And the fact that we still want to catch up and talk after all those years is pretty phenomenal. Still friends on Facebook, caught up with a few mates that come to Australia and all that. And obviously, if I ever go back to the UK, we'll, we'll catch up and get together. So I think with camaraderie, that just comes across everything from the daft roller derby things that we used to do after watching Rollerball on video and kind of... Uh, and just going out on the town together and sometimes just having a laugh because we had tight licensing laws back in the day in the UK. So you, you couldn't go like all day drinking or whatever. So when you let loose in the afternoon at Edinburgh, you just go, go and find somewhere nice to hang out and relax. And that was pretty cool just to pretend you were in the Navy for a few hours sometimes. The training was quite, quite tight, quite grueling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're always well presented, you're always well shaped, your shoes were always polished, you marched everywhere, all that kind of thing. Doing that for four years, kind of that side of it. Do you still have then, the uniform? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I threw out my mess on dress, but I've got my uh -huh. normal number one dress. It, it just didn't fit me. I think it's too short, too short on the legs, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure that's it. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. Wow. But like how long did you then spend on the sorry, on the like submarines itself? Uh I was on submarines for about oh, twenty years. <laughs> so I served on the old Polaris class. I served on three of those. I served on the old SSNs, Hunter Killer, Valiant. So you were on board or like yeah. fixing them? Oh my on gosh. Board. Uh, and how is that? How is how is that experience? It's kind of weird because you get excited. You've got all these images of what it's going to be like on a submarine. We've all seen movies and all that and kind of everything. And then you get on it and then you, you're going up to sea and you're quite excited. You're all G'd up. It rocks a little bit and everything else. And then you hear the, the captain or the, the executive officer diving now, diving now. And it's all right. Passing 60 feet, check all hatches and think, is that it? That's it, we've dived. It's kind of like, it's no real difference. It's kind of like, and it's kind of, it's a bit bit underwhelming, but exciting at the same time, because then you realize actually, well, we are underwater. We're a couple hundred feet underwater, and it's kind of like, it's nice. At least you don't get seasick. Submariners tend to be terrible on the surface, very ill. But it's kind of like, you get a gentle rocking sometimes, and it's really bad up top. But, uh it didn't feel claustrophobic. We used to get coffin dreams. That was the weird thing. Uh, now we have red lighting in, in the bunk spaces. So at night, we've got these really dull red lights. So at least you've got a background light to find your bunk, find stuff when you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go and watch. Where in the good old bad old days, we didn't really have much of that. It was really hard to get hold of. So when the lights went out, you, you can't imagine it without seeing it. Without saying it. it's no light, it is black light. So lots of newbies than I did on my first patrol. You get a couple of them. You wake up, you're totally disorientated. You don't know where you are. You're facing the wrong way. So instead of trying to get out your bunk by the curtain, you're scrambling at the wall. And 
kind of like it's what's called a coffin dream. You would just wake up on the floor like heavy breathing, which is pretty standard for a lot of people. And most of us get over it. That was a that's a crazy thing. Oh, you had your coffin dream, then you. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they put you there in pitch black. <laughs> it's you're gonna sleep. <laughs> but what if you need to wake up? <laughs> well, you do. You kind of you're somebody at sort of half three in the morning. You're on watch at four. You get the torch in the face, kind of thing, and you've got a little bunk light you can put on because you put tape over your bunk light so it's not so bright. Yeah. So there's little tricks oh like God. that. That is by far the most amazing career I've ever heard of. I could just keep asking questions yeah. like yeah. <laughs> for ages. I want to know more too. It's so interesting and so different from everything that I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> but somehow we have to just go back to engineering in Australia. And you yeah. said that you came to Australia 11 years ago. Yes. Did you always like Australia? What, what brought you here? <laughs> Well, I worked at the refinery in New Zealand, then said refining, it was called then. And uh, it's a single refinery. I've been a senior reliability engineer for, what, eight years there. There's nowhere to go. My boss was an apprentice at the refinery, and he'd moved up through the ranks. So he was going to retire there, and he had a, he's the same age as me. So kind of the only place to go, really, was to leave New Zealand, which is a shame. It's lovely, but, yeah, Australia's okay. Mm. <laughs> not as amazing as New Zealand but it will do <laughs> oh, no it's, it's a beautiful place they both are mm. I think everybody in New Zealand and Australia is spoiled does New Zealand drop parallels to Scotland a little bit or no it's like Scotland but with warm weather hmm. yeah that's nice yeah because Scotland's yeah. very windy <laughs> all right yeah I was very surprised yeah <laughs> Yeah, I remember sitting out once with the children in Gartahan just outside Glasgow. It was a bit miserable and the wind was blowing our picnic and we was just, just be quiet, eat your sandwiches and then we can go. It's like, Dad, we want to go. It's like, you're Scottish. It's kind of... <laughs> yeah, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, I had the chance oh, of going a couple of months ago and wow, it was fantastic. Oh, excellent. It is beautiful. I do miss it a bit, but you spoiled here. You've got it's such a contrast from everything. You've been to Threadball, getting hailed on to going up to Darwin and thinking, "Oh my, when is, where's the aircon? Where's the nearest air-conditioned shelter?" It's kind of like... <laughs> wow, that's pretty incredible. But Australia just had a lot more opportunity in terms of engineering, and I was offered a job first in Moranbah and then down in Brisbane. And it seemed a bit better for my children for school and I'm not to come down to Brizzy. So, yeah, I kind of just moved, got another job offer for with QGC for a while and then uh, ended up with Conoco about eight years mm. ago. Well, as you know, we love talking about the experiences of women in this industry and it caught my attention that you, if I'm not wrong, you're the only male member in um, the Women in Engineering Committee here in Queensland. Yes. I, I joined at the beginning of this year and I saw that you joined last year. Isn't that yeah. right? Yes. yes. I, we just want to know where does this interest for um, gender and equity or diversity and inclusion comes from? 
Well, my name's Wolfgang. My full name's Wolfgang Alan Dempsey. So um, I was called Wolfgang at school. So it's because my mum's German. And I grew up being bullied by much older kids as well for being German. They're kind of like, you know, you shot at my granddad kind of thing. You, you say here, your excuses. Well, I'm only nine. But you would kind of, you would get that. And, you, and I was, yeah, bullied quite a bit as a child. So you see what it's a little bit like for the underdog, if you like. And I really hated that. And then I joined the Navy. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of good things about the Navy, but it was very misogynistic, xenophobic racist every kind of ism you could bring into the navy back in the 70s was there and you kind of fall into line because you don't want to stand out not when you're 16 but then you start to realize there's a lot wrong with it then you realize in many respects you can't change it but it did change itself the, the navy we we allowed gays into the navy like wow because we had the unspoken rule for a time but then if you were homosexual you couldn't stand up or say anything and then we had some submarines. We weren't going to allow women on them. And I think they do allow women to sail on submarines now. But we were alongside in Recife, just outside Edinburgh, uh, after a refit on Valiant. And alongside us was a small Swedish submarine. I think they had a crew of about 25, 30 people. And they had men and women serving on that submarine. And I remember one morning, one day we were just talking to the upper deck Century, uh, century, and saying, you know, how's it go? So you've got different showers, no, but you've got different mess decks, no, sleeping arrangements, no. So well, well, how do you get on, you know, with men and women working alongside each other at sea? <laughs> and he turned around and he said, it's because we're growing up, we're a lot more mature oh. about it. And it's like you hit the nail on the head. You kind of like, yeah, fair point. And that was kind of like, that was a bit of a turning point for me as well. And in the in the Navy, in the military, you're a long voice, especially at the rank I was, I was a, as a charge chief, senior charge chief, but you're not going to change the world at that level. And then you kind of move out, and I, I went to New Zealand, and New Zealand society is very open and modern in terms of a lot of things, but then one of my mates, we, we had a, a girl, she was awesome, and she applied for a job in the control room as an operator, she was really good. And I think that provided a reference for her. And she, she didn't get the job. And I thought, well, the two operators that are employed must be really good. And then I was talking to my mate uh, about six, seven months later. And he said, yeah. He said, I was there. She was good, but there's no way we're going to have a woman in the control room. That's <laughs> like, whoa, wait on, you know? And kind of like, yeah, we, we had some kind of words about that. Because that's just, that's not the behavior. And I thought that was, that would have been about 2005, 2006. It's this century, and you're still getting that behaviour. And, and New Zealand, I thought, was a wonderful, tolerant place. They say bicultural, but in reality, it's a multicultural society, and there's a lot of opportunity for everyone. I thought, but not, not women, not in that environment. And in reality, there weren't many female engineers there. They tended to be process engineers. And then I came to Australia, and I think, most of me, where I am now. It's there's quite a mix, and I, I enjoy that for various reasons. You, having different people bring different things to the table, different offerings, the way we work together is a lot better. And I think it, it creates a better and stronger bond when you've got that diversity. It's kind of like something I was studying earlier in life. I just finished a, a, a master's with Newcastle, 
in what we studied there is kind of like looking at social identity and how you build it up and sort of change it from what's important personally to people to bring it all together to what's important for an organization, what's important for your society, for your group. And having that kind of breadth and depth in terms of cultural diversity, whether it be gender, whether it be sexuality, whether it be religion, whether it be just all the different backgrounds that we have in a room, that's important. And that's kind of like, that drives me a bit. I want to see that people get a fair shout at everything. Uh, I joined the diversity, I had to apply for a diversity, equality and inclusivity committee at work. Um, part of what we call a learning organization, trying to help change the culture a little bit. So it's a little bit of a little bit of a sprint late in life as I turn 60 this year at the end of my career to kind of uh, help try and change things, help anyone I can, and probably make up for some of the things that went wrong in the, in the late 70s when I joined the Navy. That if is that, absolutely any of that makes incredible. sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and I love that you're so attuned to it. And I get that it comes from your background, but there's so many people that we speak to and like, A, they're clueless that it's still a thing, yeah. um, that we haven't reached equality the way we want to, or, you know, like, okay, clueless is probably the first thing that was shocking to me, <laughs> to be honest. I'm yeah. like, oh, is that still a thing? <laughs> um, but also, even if they're attuned, like it's, it's not um, a very proactive thing. So I noticed when I was a part of, um, what was it, women in engineering at uni or something? I believe it was skirts or something. And they said, um, no, this was Engineers Australia. Um, and there was a committee and they said, unfortunately, what happens is as soon as they uh, there is a committee about women in engineering or something, everyone just automatically assumes, oh, it's just for the women to be a part of. And so you don't get, um, unfortunately, men being a part of it when they they are in the position to make the most change. So it is important to have them at the table. Exactly. It is very important to bring men um, to the table to yeah. discuss these topics to, to sort of like gather the perspective um, that they have as well because I work with a few people and I've been asking the questions especially now more um, that we have the podcast because it's so important to have that perception and there's a lot of men um, but also women that still don't really know the depth of this diversity and inclusion issue and and it's like they they don't realize that we're missing out from 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 not having everyone involved from having those conversations and the conversations are difficult to have many of them and it takes a little yeah. bit of courage for a lot of people a, a lot of managers to actually do that it's I think it's really hard because it's it's definitely a societal issue but we we can all contribute to change it and and organizations can also have a bit of of a drive on it but yeah. I think it's really complicated to make them understand that yeah it's yeah kind of when I hear some things it's kind of hard because you don't want to meet them head on the uh, engineer right mechanical you look, we used to do pneumatics, so if you've got 15 PSI control air, you can change it by just a little blast. You can change its direction with a 3 PSI. So something that's so small, the fifth of the size, can actually change something. So if you kind of like maneuver to the side, if you like, and ask the right questions when you hear some of the behaviors that are inappropriate or wrong, rather than calling them out, hey, that's wrong. Try and understand a little bit where, where they come from, perhaps, 
you can empathize with them. You don't have to agree with them or anything else. Just create a little bit of understanding. And that goes a long way. And then you can talk to them. It kind of, I don't mean patronizing, at their level or on their level. Yeah. I suppose, like, as an example, with that control room situation uh, that you talked about earlier, the interviews, like you having a conversation with that person, do you think, um, A, have you noticed, has it made a difference? Or do you think it would have made a difference in the decision next time? I think it would make a decision in the difference next time because I certainly would be an advocate uh, for her, stronger one. I, I thought I was, I provided a great reference, and I thought she'd stand a fair chance at the interview. I thought we were quite an open uh organization uh, and we were in many respects it's just that you got little corners tucked away and in many respects it was refinery's loss she was she would have been great and i didn't do that one side on that was more of a head on how oh, you're an idiot oh, God, it's kind so of like, it wasn't the three psi yeah. <laughs> it was 16 no, matching 16 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that instance though um i guess have you had any opportunities to just speak up for someone for either a, a female or a male colleague, um, have you had any opportunity to call someone out and be like, that's not right, Is that's not right the thing to do? Or do you have any advice for anyone that would be put in that position and would like to do so but doesn't really know how to do it? Uh, yeah, it's hard. Uh, some of it I was at a previous workplace in Australia and the conversation it was kind of like, it's quite crude. Don't get me wrong. I've had 24 years in the Navy. I know what crude is. I can I can operate at that level if I ever have to. But it's kind of like, and it was quite crude. It was quite harsh, barbaric conversation. It was racist and sexist. And it's just like, I just poked my head over the kind of, you know, the office partitions. Like, really? Really? Come on, guys. What was that about? Uh, and it was in that tone. It was in that manner. And, uh, oh, we knew you would say something. It's like, well... If you knew I would say something, why wouldn't you think anybody else would? Why would you think it's okay? It's, it's, I'm not out the ordinary, I'm a normal person. I said, and you're lucky that there's nobody else here. And it's just calling out the behaviors. And it kind of makes them think twice about saying it, one, in public. And that actually helps them think about whether they should be saying it at all. And it's, it's a slow, hard slog because... There are guys my age and just about 10 years younger, so you're not going to change them overnight. You're not going to change them in one conversation. You're going to have to work and change them bit by bit. And either you create an organization where they can get on board, or you also provide the opportunity for them to leave. Good point. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it does amount to that. One thing I was really curious about, so since like you, know, you worked in um, you know, the Navy and you said that that was, yeah, there weren't even women serving there, uh, but now you've obviously worked in, you know, teams where it's majority, well, not majority, but like a fair bit of um, inclusion of women. So you've worked in, in both uh, sides of the spectrum, I guess. Is What I was really curious to know is, is there any difference in those team dynamics or outputs that you would attribute purely to the gender difference? Uh, no, I think in the old male environment, there's a different context in terms of space and time. Uh, it was back in the 70s and 80s. We had a real cold war going on. We had the Falklands and a few other things that kind of drove a lot of behaviors and all that. And in some respects, what you do is you park everything behind you uh, in terms of that kind of all the isms. You kind of like just get on with being what you have to be. You're a part of the machine. It sounds cheesy on the submarine. And you do your job. 
but actually working with women has been in a more open environment. And I found that that's come on in the last 20 years since I've left the Navy. And it, there's a lot more women in the engineering workplace. There's a lot more women actually concreting, doing some of the, the, the hard work, etc. if you know what I mean, that with, we never thought women could do back in the day. They'll never be able to handle that. And they can, and they've shown it. And sometimes that's all it takes, a woman that's brave enough to step into these environments. But it's also brave enough, because it, you've got to be brave enough, because it's just not easy. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of people, oh, she's only got the job because it's the gender ticking the box or whatever. And we hide, I think, we males hide behind things like meritocracy. We use words like that. We use words like tenure experience or have to kind of end up end the pregnancy one well we're just going to join them two years later i'll have a baby and then that's why should i put my career on hold for her and that's kind of like not actually understanding the value that somebody can bring in that period of time working and the benefit to the organization yeah you have brought up a few topics that are so important and we really wanted to talk about, like, for example, meritocracy. Um, we actually were thinking about dedicating a whole episode to that yeah. because we think that it's sort of like a myth, right? Um, do we really use it um, <laughs> to, to hire people? There's a big gap between what we believe to be true and what is. And I think in many respects, we've all seen it. We've all seen somebody get a promotion that you perhaps thought you would have been better in that role or whatever. And we see some people rise to the top that really don't deserve in many respects to be there. And I don't mean that in a, in a callous or harsh way. They're kind of the, to the right fit in many different respects. They fit in with the club. It happened in the Navy quite a lot if you were in the right football team you played rugby with such and such some of those people rose to the top despite not having the skills and it's kind of like so there's a big gap between i work my best i've done my hardest i've come at the weekends to make sure that the organization is a success the submarine sales on time or whatever i put in the extra effort and you get oh, well done mate and you see your, your mates go off and rise to the top because instead of coming in at the weekend, they went and played rugby and they won and all that. And it's kind of, there's different versions of that present in all parts of our workplaces. And it's, it's kind of hard to watch and see. And I think that plays in both genders, right? Because yeah. um, we're talking about affinity at the moment. Like when, when you have affinity with a colleague and you're more likely to probably work with them because you have that affinity but I feel like it's really hard when it comes to having completely different interests because of the fact that you both are like different in, yeah. in gender so how how can we make sure that when working we sort of like remove those biases from our head <laughs> that's like our question at the moment and it's a really hard one yeah. we don't have to answer it <laughs> well being aware of your biases and there's a lot of psychological fluff going around about unconscious bias and your unconscious bias is not a problem it's the conscious bias the actual decisions that you do that you do make and you do call out and you do decide you're not going to mix with that person because of whatever now that's not unconscious bias that's a conscious decision you've made and you're aware of it and certainly even if you think it's unconscious you'll get feelings i don't particularly like that person i don't like that girl i don't like that man why would you dress differently 
and we all make this. So it's kind of like starting to educate us. So ask yourself, why do I feel that way? Why is it that that happens? And realizing that at some level, the problem's here. It's not out there. And that's uh, and that's a big part of where I went to in some of the studies with social identity is understanding what's better for society and for the organization actually does benefit you as a person as well. And finding not differences, gender, religion, music, sports, but finding common ground as well. Understanding the commonality that exists. So if two people are there, a male and a female engineer, they're both engineers. They're both working in the same organization. They're both probably living in an area close to each other in terms of the city if they live in one organization. There's probably bars, cafes, shops, or whatever that they mix together in this other thing. And there's a whole host of commonalities. Do you vote for the same party? Do you vote for the same MP candidate? Do you kind of read similar books? So kind of like, don't hide behind differences, but try and seek out commonality. Broaden your discussion. One of the one of the, one of my leaders I do look up to, even though he supported Leeds United Football Club, was at the refinery. He was quite, quite he's he was the president of the ICME for a while. Ken Rivers, and he said about safety talks about don't go out there with a clipboard, don't go out there and ask people show me your permit, show me your risk assessment, tell me what you're doing. Go out and ask them about the day. And that'll, that'll broaden the safety discussion. You'll get more back if you talk about how the All Blacks went on at the rugby at the weekend. Obviously, you can't do that in Australia with the Wallabies, but it's it's more of a touchy subject. But but you go out and you ask them, like, where did you go fishing at the weekend? Where's a good spot to go? And that starts to break down the barriers. And you're not talking about work. You're not there because you have to be. You're not there because you're doing the D and I ticking the box. You're out there because you care. You want to make a difference. And people see that. It's actually a cool place to work in the end, very finally. What was that mostly like? Like mostly like on site sort of thing? Yeah, it was all on site, yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, was there a lot of, I guess, just coming back to the women thing, like were there a lot of women around you in that space in that time? Uh by a lot, many, 10%, yeah. Yeah, there'd been about 10%. A lot were admin and the kind of domestic stuff, the typical things, HR. Uh, we had Lindsay, she was great. She was a CUI inspector, corrosion under insulation. And she rose to being a kind of inspector to lead in that team. Uh, we had Vinny, who was a, an admin assistant for the inspection team. And when we went to a new... Uh, RBI risk-based inspection software package. Can I help on that? And she did. She she did a lot more than admin. And then we just realised what skills she did have, because <laughs> she she had a degree back in India and all that, but she just came and supported her husband and moved to New Zealand. And then we found out what skills she did have, so helped her through that. That was great. That was my mate Mike helped her do that. So I think you start to recognise that there's talent in all the hidden pockets, if you like. And and do you think that that gap in not having many women um, was based on like interests, not women not being interested in in the STEM careers? Yeah, I think in terms of the engineering, like mechanical and reliability, 
we had no female engineers and we only had one female vacation student come through in the eight years that I was there. She worked from IT. Uh, we had a, a senior process safety engineer come in from Transfield Worley, and she was great. But she actually got a bit of a hard time, which we had to step down on because she was a woman. And that's, that's like, that was another come on, guys moment. Uh, but the process engineers, they were half and half, male, female. It, you know, it varied. So some came, some went over the years. But they, they were all smart people out there, process engineers, despite their love of highlighters and kind of colouring in things. But it's kind of like, uh, but yeah, when you start to go out on the shop floor, with kind of apprentices and all that, I'm just mentally racking my brain. No, we have very few women doing that kind of stuff. No mm. female operators. Yeah. So the reason we ask is like a lot of times when we hear about this um, conversation, um, a lot of people just say, oh, but, you know, innately men and women are interested in different kinds of work. And that's why, you know, oh, women are more interested in things like nursing or, you know, I don't know, HR, people-oriented things. And they're just not into things as technical. Um, but we always wonder, is that something that you would agree on? Or is it just mostly just like, I get the retention issue is uh, like how you said, the, the lady had to step down because she had a tough time. But is it mostly that there's just, um, yeah, just not an interest? <laughs> or is it that there's not any representation so they don't see themselves going into that field like you know you see yourself ca capable of doing what you've seen other people do but 18 percent of women engineering you know that's kind of like that's, that's a pretty poor figure so in terms of role models you kind of struggle yeah. to find them yeah uh, and i think two granddaughters and the mother's brilliant don't get me wrong however it's frozen my little pony my princess dancing classes and all that. So when they do come over, uh, I'm not very good, but get them on the piano and start to talk a few different things. I've got a few kind of different books to kind of get them and toys to get them a bit more mechanically minded, I would say. Uh, practical little engineering toys. And it, it starts off early. My boys, we had a little mini kitchen for them. Had a little mini hoover and all that. So we taught them that it's, this isn't a girl's toy which is how it was sold. This is a toy. Have fun in it. Let's make stuff. And then So essentially what happens is with that programming, if I if you if correct me if I'm wrong in understanding, is that because like that's sort of what they see, you know, the frozen and the, the, the house yeah. toys, by the time they get to eighteen and twenty, there is almost a lack of interest in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that wouldn't be too wrong. Boys and girls' clothes. You've got the T-shirts. They're all pink with fluffy stuff on them and unicorns. Mm. And the boys have got trucks and firemen. Why? Mm. So, <laughs> mm. so it's important to highlight that part of this, I guess, quotation mark solution yeah. would be just yeah. to discuss the the gender roles, right? In in yeah. from like a child, yeah, from like a childhood perspective, even in basic things like playing with toys that pretty much set set up our brain to just think that our strengths are to be more nurturing yeah. by playing with babies or things like that. Mm. It becomes ingrained. There was a really interesting documentary or trial set up BBC, one of the British channels. It was, it was not too long ago here. 
when it's a primary school, and the, the teachers were great, but the male teachers there, yes, love, what do you want, love, come on, dear, all that to the girls, and all right, mate, how are you doing, to the, to the boys. And there was similar things, that I was a great teacher, but I said, right, what we want to do is neutralize gender. And they went down the path, the parents were on board as well for this class, and uh, it really, the outcome was really different. Some of the boys got into some of the, the different stuff that we traditionally associate with girls, the arts and the crafts, and the girls got more into sports and everything else. And you saw some of the boys got really upset when the girls beat them at sports. But because the parents were on board as well with the experiment, it kind of all managed to tease itself out. And the end result was really quite powerful. And I think it's it's kind of what we do and what we sell. And it's not just the parents buying My Little Pony. It's the, the girls go to school, and that's what everybody else has got. And it's the same for the boys. You spot a boy there with a dolly in the primary primary school playground. He's not going to have many mates. Yeah, no. That kind of thing. <laughs> it's, and that's, yeah, it's a bit of a tragedy. Yeah. Um, I have a hard question yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, do you agree that the problem with women getting ahead in a career is more so attributed to them not putting themselves out as much as men do? Because I've heard this um, regarding the pay, the, the, the pay gap. Yeah, like not asking for their worth or, you know, not being as confident or, yeah. Do you think that's quite a bit of where it comes from? I'm not sure because I'm not confident. I would have never gone to my boss and asked for a pay rise. And even with my cohort, and we're talking guys of my age, we all want a pay rise, but we would never go and push and ask for it. And I think in, in many respects, that's kind of like some of this American corporatism that creeps in. Yeah, you go and ask your boss for a pay rise. Well, that conversation is not going to end well for the majority of us. And I think, and some of it, if you recognize a worker that works for you, that deserves extra, it's up to the manager to actually make the effort as well. Because in many respects, workers do have some power, but we are quite powerless in the current economic climate. There's not a lot of places for workers to jump overboard to at the moment. There's not a lot of big projects for engineers coming into Australia at the moment. So we're fairly powerless. So it's up to the managers to get on board and not just do all this virtue signaling about diversity and inclusivity and learning organizations and creating learning and sharing culture. You've got to actually live and breathe it and, and, and get out and talk to people and spend time with them and learn from them because we can all learn from each other. It's, it sounds cheesy, but you, you'd be amazed at what you pick up, like the conversation with a Swedish Samana. Just grow up, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how refreshing that is to hear like because unfortunately yeah, a lot of the times people are like oh you know you just need to put yourself out there and and yeah. have that conversation and I literally was wondering I'm like is there just such a difference gender wise you know how you said that things are you know in control of the manager and as as the worker we don't necessarily have that control but we do want things to change you know like yeah. you said and the legislation set in a very long time ago but we probably haven't reached where we want to reach so what do you think is something else I guess on a grassroots level the worker side of things that needs to change so that we can capture these changes and we can implement them I guess uh, when, I, when I joined the refinery in New Zealand it was a very everything was reliable and I joined as reliability engineer so I couldn't go in and fix all this stuff that was broken everything was just about fixed and you had to make that difference 
Sue's, what I'm trying to say is that was really more difficult. And I left after eight and a half years in the refinery, and we did make some great inroads. I facilitate, I didn't do it all, I'm not taking credit for it. But it's still a journey that's going on. And kind of what you, what I did was bit by bit, just started to slowly engage those around me, try and bring them on board and sell the message, not in a kind of evangelical kind of way, slowly just nip away. And it's no different for diversity and inclusivity and equality. Just start nipping away. Because when it's one person, that'll take a, a lot of time. But when you start to spread it and lots of people do it, then it's, it's not, I don't want to use the euphemism, it's like a bunch of piranhas, because that's not, that's not a nice image. <laughs> but you will get to the bone or the crux of many of the matters a lot quicker if you do that. Start to strip things down. But it's breaking down some of the barriers that are there. And understanding even when the barriers are wrong, even when the kind of prejudice is wrong, there's a reason why it's there and trying to understand how you work at that. Hitting it straight on is not going to work. You've got to maneuver your way and it just takes time. So we're talking, it's going to be years, probably, I'm going to be retired, probably dead and gone before it really gets to the place where it should be. And, and that's a tragedy because I look at the years, 2022, and you see the vision everybody had for the future, not George Orwell's, but... All the kind of nice ones of flying cars and the Jetsons and all that kind of stuff. And we're not anywhere near it. It's, and that's kind of tragic. You, you can't get equality for another human being. How crazy is that? We, we, we know countries where that exists and none of us want to live there. So why do we have it in the country we live in, the one we choose to live in? What I'm seeing is a, a lot of times what happens, like when we're, we're, we're look, the way we talked about earlier, like sometimes when these conversations happen, People think, you know, it's only for women to discuss. One thing we're really curious and we're always conscious of is trying not to to antagonize men in that way or single them out kind of deal. So what sort of advice would you give us, I guess, if we're trying to make this appealing to, you know, the, the, the male engineer who's listening and could make a difference? How would you think it's good to, to shape it for them? Uh, I think the important thing is to kind of get rid of the them and us kind of mentality and a, a lot of a lot of male colleagues see that you have to give up something to achieve equality and you don't have to give up anything you, you, you're not giving up anything you're actually gaining by helping somebody else by helping them achieve equality you create a better workplace you create a better environment for you you're getting the right colleagues working with you not just somebody that's kind of long on the tooth and white middle-aged male like me you're getting the right person alongside you who might be white, middle-aged male along the tooth, but might be female as well from a different cultural background. And they might be the best person. So it just takes time and showing that giving somebody else something does not mean you're losing anything. It's not a to and fro. It's not an us and them. It's us. It, it's, it's just some, yeah. I really like that you brought that up. <laughs> no, because a lot of times what we hear is, especially in the younger males that are applying for jobs now, um, and they hear, you know, that there's quotas to hire a certain percentage of women. So that kind of con that kind of conversation happens a lot more where they're like, oh, we're giving up positions of very competent males just to hire maybe a not as competent female or just females in general. Do you think we run that risk? 
at the moment. I think quotas are dangerous because they introduce another kind of prejudice and bias almost. That's how it can be seen. And I think it's 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 a hard it's a hard battleground to stand on if you like. But without quotas, nothing's gonna happen. We're gonna have the talk first, we'll have the talk first. And so and it's it's a difficult one because I haven't agreed with quotas for many times. Well, I wouldn't say I haven't agreed with them, it's kind of a struggle with them. Do we should we have them? And yet Oh, she got the job because she's female. Well, it doesn't quite work like that with the quotas. She's still got to be competent. She's still got to be suitably qualified. She's still got to present well at the interview, mate. That's all still got to happen. And it doesn't mean she's better or worse than you. And then what? It doesn't mean you're better or worse than her. And that's just the way it's gone. And we need to, we do need to apply some quotas, I think, in some respects. Otherwise, we're going to be having this conversation in 10 years' time. That'd be exactly the same. Yeah, that's I don't that's like right. I love that. <laughs> yeah, but they're almost but a short-term a solution. Yeah. It's to help get the ball rolling, if you like. That fly yeah, exactly. Moving, get over and then when it's show. rolling, it's already rolling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have really enjoyed yeah. this conversation thank you so much we for hope you have so, to, yeah. so much let's be different so yeah at the end of every conversation that we have um we like to ask some fire questions just some fast quick questions to get to know oh, you yes. a bit more that kind of thing yeah yeah <laughs> so i guess the first one's like any hobbies that you enjoy outside of work uh i love music i love listening to it i've got i started to play guitar a few months ago i've got i started playing piano just about two years ago Oh, that is so cool. So you're never, never too old to learn, but I do just enjoy music, listening to music. We just went down to Sydney at the weekend to see a pianist at the Opera House, and it was awesome. Uh, and that takes up all my time because it was a go-to at sea when Walkmans came out. It was absolutely brilliant. That was what you put on to get away from being on a submarine, especially the auto-reverse ones because you'd wake up when the battery was dying. It's kind of that noise going on. But uh, that I like reading, photography. I like studying. Uh, I've just finished a uh, course of study at Newcastle, so I've got another master's. So it's kind of like, yeah, I've got to suss out what to do next. Wow. That is very, very amazing. Yeah. Uh, do you have any favorite food that you enjoy? Everything except cucumber and gherkins, because they're absolutely horrible and evil. They're just the most... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard there's only 3% of the population who knows the actual taste of a cucumber and it really? sounds like you're one of them yeah yeah oh, can that. you smell oh, it from really far yeah and it's kind of like sometimes you get a big sandwich it's got salad it's got lots of meat and everything and avocados oh cucumber yeah it's got, just have to pull it out is it that bad yeah Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's hilarious. So what's your favorite place you lived in uh, for work? Because you've lived in a few different places while working. So do you have any favorite? No, really kind of wherever I lay my hat is my home. And it's kind of the people around you make wherever it is you are. So it's kind of like we're going to retire to Tassie, which would be a shock for my wife, who's a Queenslander through and through. So she's going to be cold, <laughs> but it's kind of like, it's, she wants to, says, yeah, I'll go for it. And the dogs would be terrified because they're shivering. But I think it's it's the people around you that make the place and what you what you 
got at your sort of fingertips. I, I walked down, we've got a bush walk, literally two minutes down the road. We've got bush just over there as well. It's kind of like, it's nice, it's pleasant. New Zealand was beautiful. Scotland was. Five minutes on my push bike, I was, I was going up through Loch Lomond. And Scotland's just kind of like, it was great. Yeah, and Tassie's going to be awesome. Holy moly. <laughs> oh, will be. It'd be nice to be cold. something about gen sets that you just don't get you don't understand Uh, no I do my wife thinks I'm very immature for my age sure (laughs) my next birthday is not 60 it's going to be something like 13 or 15 but it's kind of like I think it's easy to package things up like that, but that's what we do with gender. That's what we do with race. That's what we do with a lot of things. It's kind of like you're just born in a different generation with different things going on. And kind of like there's a lot of old music and old trends being rediscovered, and it's kind of pretty cool. You just kind of get on with it, understand everybody's different, but we've all got things in common. We can all learn from each other. I'm so glad in many respects that I grew up in the era that I did without mobile phones, for example. It's very yep. true. Yeah. <laughs> They're a blessing and a curse at the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So, like, you, you talk about your wife a little bit. Is there anything you would say is, a, is a, like an ingredient for a successful marriage? to keep it fun uh, or whatever probably not the best person to ask because this is my third marriage she is my favorite wife i have told her that <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's kind of like, i'm quite laid back and i think it's it's a little bit of give and take in any relationship and i don't mean you're making sacrifices you're not kind of burning your soul or it's a bit of understanding of each other and having some things in common but enough differences to make life interesting as well she hates like my music <laughs> what music do you listen to I'm so curious <laughs> I've got kind of, got a really broad face but some of it's a bit out there so it's <laughs> the cramps to Nick Cave to Nils Fram who we saw at the weekend the German pianist to Max Richter Hoping to get tickets to see Billy Joel. So it's, it's a kind of whole Floyd. All great. And I guess last thing would probably be any advice to like new age uh, professionals coming up? Yeah, any words of wisdom for those? <laughs> uh, never be afraid. I was taught this very early on. Never be afraid to say you don't know something or you don't understand. And always become uh, always be cognizant of the fact that you can't know everything, but you can keep learning. Yeah. Thank you Love so that. much. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks a lot. We've really enjoyed these. We have learned a lot of things, <laughs> and we have learned about you, which is the most amazing thing about these um, interv- interviews. We get to know people, and we get to know how similar and and different we are all. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's an amazing experience. Mm. Oh, thanks it's been very a pleasure much, talking Laura. to you. Thanks, Sahan. It's mm. been great.